0: Anyway, take your Bibles this morning, if you will, and I want you to turn first to 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar passage, one we know very well. Uh, We're going to start here, but we are by no means going to stay here. We're eventually going to turn back to the scripture reading we had, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, But we are staying within these two Timothys, uh, because we want to understand where we need to go as a church. What do we need to do? Now, if you want... Uh, we can go on to the website, we can pull off our vision statement which says that we are to be a vibrant local body of believers firmly rooted in the Word of God and, and so on. And you can look at that. Well, we are. Uh, the message today is, is somewhat coming from that, but I wanted us to make sure that we were firmly rooted in the Word of God. And in order to do that, we must understand there are three things that we must need, some of which we do well, some of which we do not do so well. Three weeks ago, we started to consider our purpose as a fellowship. And Jeremy informed me today that those two messages from previously have been put online. If you have missed either one of those or both of them, please go back and pick those up. Because that is vitally important to understand what it is that we do, why we exist. Because if we're the same as everybody else, then we've got to cease to exist. And so there is something unique about us. And there is something unique about the way that we minister to our community. And it must all be firmly rooted in the Word of God. And so make sure you go back and you visit those two messages. They're on the website, www.goodlandbible.org, and go to the audio tab, and underneath there's the messages. So make sure you listen to those if you have not. So we've been working through this. And interestingly enough, I had a conversation this week with a young man from Uzbekistan. And uh, he is a Sunni Muslim. He lives here in town, uh, has lived here for two and a half years. In that time, he has not once been confronted with the gospel. Not one time. He is a Sunni Muslim traveling to what he believed was a Christian nation. And not one time in two and a half years has the gospel been presented to him until this week. He noticed the number of churches in town, making mention that they all call themselves Christian. He asked why there are so many. And as he asked that question, I asked within my heart why not one believer out of any of those churches has ever engaged him in conversation, especially pertaining to the gospel. In two and a half years, I wonder how many believers came in contact with D. We don't. I don't know his real name. D is the only thing I can pronounce in his name. How many believers came across his path in two and a half years in Goodland, Kansas, and not one said anything to him. This past year, a trend that I have noticed for quite a while has continued. When I had four different conversations with four different individuals who have, who all are living in Goodland, and they've lived here between one and seven years. They never knew that a group of believers met in this building. Right across the street from the clinic. In fact, two of the four didn't even know there was a church here. They never looked this way. I wonder how many times a believer from this body has crossed their path and never breathed the word about the gospel or about our church. I wonder how many believers live next door to them or down the street from them and have never spoken to them about the things of the Lord. By the end of today, I will issue challenges and provide the basic tools necessary that stories like this will never happen again in Goodland, Kansas. There's no reason. We are small enough. There is no reason that in Goodland, Kansas, this should happen. But the reality is, That the means can be provided. But if no one goes, nothing happens. I can equip with all of the tools. But if no one speaks, if no one walks, no one shares, nothing happens. So the idea that I want us to focus on today is this. The vision of our fellowship must be rooted in God's Word. It must insist on a passion for prayer. And it will manifest itself as a compassion for people. If we are firmly rooted in the Word of God, then that's going to insist on a passion for prayer, and it will manifest itself as a compassion for people. And so as we begin this morning, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, as we bow our heads today, we, in many ways, come before you confessing our failures. We see many of these aspects that are in this list, just in our central idea that we are not doing faithfully, regularly, and consistently. I pray that that would change today. I pray that our initiatives that we introduce would be life-changing for us, not that there's anything inherently good about them other than it's just a motivating force to cause us to be obedient to your word. I pray that we would be obedient, that we would practice what we preach, that we would speak what we say. And say it with clarity, that your name would be glorified in this community. As we observed in uh, the elder meeting this past week, that uh, sometimes our crops aren't so good, sometimes they are very good. We recognize that there is one crop that is always good. You said the fields are white for harvest. I pray that we would be people who are laborers in that field. That we are harvesting and harvesting abundantly that your name may be glorified and exalted above all. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this. I pray that you give me the words to say. Now, this is something I am passionate about very deeply, but I pray that everything that I speak would be as if it was from you, that your name would be glorified in that as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning, in many ways, we take a hard look in the mirror. This is a sermon that I have not wanted to preach. Uh, This is something I have struggled getting ready. We take a good hard look in the mirror. When you wake up in the morning, does it behoove you to look in the mirror? Or did you just get up this morning, throw on clothes, and here you are? How many of you did that? A couple of us did. Just threw on clothes, and were like, church, here we come. I don't even want to look in the mirror. I don't care what it says. I don't want anything to do with that mirror. How many of us looked in the mirror this morning? At least to some extent, the majority of us looked in the mirror. And we were like, okay, there's some issues here. There's some things i got to fix. I may not like them. I may not like those wrinkled brows. I may not like the gray that's coming into my hair every day. <laughs> uh, but these are things that we must address. We do the same thing this morning. How many of you enjoy that first look in the mirror in the morning? Like, oh, back to normal now. No, none of us enjoy that first look in the mirror, right? So this morning, we're not going to enjoy the first look in the mirror. I'm going to tell you that right off. But I hope by the time we are done this morning, you have a passion for prayer and you have a compassion for people. And that's all rooted in the Word of God. And that is our outline. Our basic or our central idea this morning does form our outline. Rooted in God's Word, a passion for prayer and a compassion for people. And so we begin here in 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar passage to all of us. You should have it memorized. It should be one of those things that you're like, yep, all Scripture is inspired by God. And you can quote it verbatim. This is something we should know very well. The Scripture here says this, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I'm going to add verse 17 because we're going to add it later. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. See, there's a purpose. There's a, there's a reason for the Word of God. And that reason is because it establishes the foundation for our growth. And that is our first point as we move into rooted in God's Word. It is our foundation. In a world filled with information, this is something that has come up many times this week. Uh, In my own personal conversations with many of you. In a world filled with information. Filled with arguments for and against everything imaginable. If you want to argue for plastic bottles, there's an argument for that. If you want to find an argument against plastic bottles, there's an argument for that. Go, you could you could join any argument you want. So what do we do? What do we do as a body of believers? How do we know what's right and what is wrong in a world where no sense of a solid foundation is to be had? Where can we turn? Right here. This is our foundation. You want to know how a church ought to act? This is our foundation. You want to know what the believer is to do in their life after they come to know Christ as Savior? This is our foundation. This is where we rest. It doesn't matter what you find on the Internet. You've seen those commercials where that guy's out there surveying his car and the uh, neighbor across the, who lives in a condo or whatever, comes out and says, What are you doing? He goes, well, I'm using my Geico app. She's typing the Geico app. He goes, Well, the Internet said you can't do that. You seen that? And then all of the things that she believes because the Internet says it's true. You know what? That's not our foundation. We can't go to the Internet and say, that's what I believe. If you do that, you're going to be one messed up person. So where does a Christian go? A Christian goes to the Word of God. In a world of confusion, there is one source where we find security, where we find stability. And that is in the Word of God. And Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God. You're not going to see that statement put on the Internet. All Internet material is accurate and inspired by God. Uh, No, it is not. No, so when we come, you won't find that on the Goodland paper. You won't find that on any book except the Word of God. That's what makes the Word of God unique. God is saying, that's my stamp of approval. This is my very words. The word inspired literally means to be breathed out from God. Unlike the current bestseller or the newspaper or the news media or the information you find online, the Word of God is not subjected to the failings of mankind. Not in one way. It's not subjected to the emotional drama or the limited perspective. The source of the Word of God is the infinite All-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. That is where I want to go for my foundation. That is where I want to be involved. Because that is the only solid rock for me to stand on. So what is the value of Scripture? We say, okay, we agree with the Word of God being our foundation. What is its value? Well, Paul continues on. And he says that it has profit. That it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In our overloaded society, we tend to view Scripture as on the same level, equal to, at best, the current source of our information, whatever it happens to be. I can sit right here on the computer. I can, uh, via our router, I can look up the news media. Any, any news media you want me to look up. And yet, we tend to place the Word of God on that same level. We tend to look at the news first, and then the Word of God second. We tend to put the current bestseller on the same wavelength as the Word of God. It is not even on the same atmosphere. We must understand, we must understand that the Word of God has incredible value. If you find value in reading a good book, praise the Lord. How much more should you find value in the Word of God? If you can sit down and curl up with a good book, how much value is there? Well, there might be some. It might change your attitude. It might change your perspective. But that happens every time you read the Word of God in a sincere way. In short, the Word of God, as Paul says, is profitable for teaching reproof and correction, training in righteousness. In short, the Word of God is useful in transforming your life, molding your life, molding you to fulfill that which you were created to do. How else do we know what we're supposed to do by God, by our Creator, except for His Word. We don't. You can listen to me preach until I'm blue in the face. That's not going to help unless it's rooted in the Word of God. You can go out and, and try to minister to felt needs. And that will that'll be great and wonderful, but it means nothing unless it's rooted in the Word of God. You can go out and, and bring in a million people into the body here, into the fellowship here, and... If you didn't do it rooted in the Word of God, it is worthless. There is no value to it. In short, the Word of God is useful in transforming your life, molding you. God is interested in you. He's interested in your life. He's interested in shaping and molding you. So what about the practice? What about the practice? because that is true we have a foundation the value of scripture now we have the practice of scripture jump back up to verses 14 and 15 this is something that's kind of amazing paul is instructing timothy and he says you however continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which you are able to which are able to give you wisdom That leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there and then we're going to jump to verse 17 in just a moment. So Paul says, Timothy, remember what you have learned. Go back to the sacred writings. Go back to the scriptures and apply them to your heart and life so that you would have wisdom, so that you would understand what salvation is and how to dispense the message. Paul challenges... Timothy to understand the power of the Word of God and to never depart from it. Timothy was a living testimony of the power of the Word of God. When Paul looked at Timothy, he said, Because of the Word of God, you have been transformed. If you know Christ as Savior, you are just like Timothy. The power of the Word of God has transformed your life. You are a living testimony of the power of the Word of God. You have moved from sinner to saint because of the Word of God. Because of the power of the Word of God. And there's more to that we'll talk about here in a moment when we get to presenting the gospel. If you know Christ as Savior, you are a living testimony of the power of the Word of God. What remains for many of us is that we become wise in our own eyes instead of being wise according to... To our great God, Paul knew that Timothy was going to struggle with this, and he says, "Use the sacred scriptures so that you would be wise unto salvation, so that you would have God's wisdom, not the world's salvation, or not the world's wisdom." In verse seventeen, Paul expands on that, having understood the the value of Scripture. He now moves into verse seventeen. He says, "So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work." We understand the test. All Scripture is given that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You are about to be challenged to embark on a mission to preserve in many ways the church in the present generation and in the future generation. You are about to be challenged in prayer and in people. Your equipment that you need to fulfill your mission is right here. It's right here. How many times do we have to... Get all of these things ready. We gotta suit up and get ready. No, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, what you have in your hands, and Timothy had the Old Testament and Paul's letters. A few of them. So what you have in your hands, this is your equipment. Go obey the Word of God. Go out and share the Gospel. Go out and have a passion for prayer. There is no library of books in the world that can surpass the value and the usefulness of the Word of God. One of the things that I am incredibly joyful for is that in Goodland Bible Church, we take a very high view of the Word of God. We understand the Word of God. We understand its value. We understand its power. In light of that, I am resting that we will be obedient to it. And now we're going to move into 1 Timothy. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. as we begin to understand a passion for prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. Scripture says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. As we begin to understand a passion for prayer, we need to understand the first step. Because really, Timothy is being challenged by Paul to begin a process of what is going to become the outline for the church. Do you want to know what the church should look like according to the New Testament? What book should we look in? Not Acts. We should look in 1 Timothy. We should look in Titus. We should look as Paul is addressing these issues. This is what the church looks like. This is those that we must do. This is what each individual must do in the body of believers. Paul lays it very clearly out for Timothy, and he lays it very clearly out for Titus. If we want to know what the church should look like in the New Testament, it is the First Timothy church. It is the Titus church. As they preach, Timothy in Ephesus, and Titus in Crete, as they lead these churches to maturity. So as we begin to understand this, Paul says, Timothy, as you do all of this work of the ministry... As you obey the command which we're about to look at, he has a command. The first command, which we're going to see in just a moment, is fight the good fight. He says, As you do that, as you fight the good fight, the first step is pray. Pray. That's the first step. Don't do anything unless you've done that. Don't take that first step unless you have already prayed. In fact, here in verse 1, we recognize that he says, first of all, So we understand that he is putting a challenge here. Go back to verse 18 of chapter 1. Chapter 1 verse 18 says this. Paul charges Timothy. He says, The command I entrust to you, Timothy my son, in accordance with all of the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. That's a challenge to you and I. That everything that has been spoken of the church, everything that is built to this point, we can study all of the theology of Romans chapters 1 through 8. We can study all of the chapters of 9 through 11. We can add all of the application. Therefore, we ought to subject our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. We can understand all of that. But if we don't take the step to fight the good fight, if we hide ourselves in our closets, then we're never going to fight. This is active. This is engaging in warfare. Fight the good fight. This is the command that we as Christians must take forth. Paul further defines this as keep the faith with a good conscience. Failure to do so, he says. Notice what? Notice how he moves through this passage. Look at verse 19. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. And Paul points to two. He says, look at those two. They've run aground. They have shipwrecked. Paul reminds Timothy that we that failure to keep the faith, failure to fight the good fight, failure to have a good conscience is going to result. He guarantees it in shipwrecked faith. Now, as we observe other believers, some of which we have uh, had the privilege of fellowshipping with, many many who have not had a good conscience, who have not kept the faith. Have suffered shipwrecked faith. Paul says, Look at look at these two. Hiimaeus and, and Alexander, look at them. They've got a shipwrecked faith. And there, there's a uniqueness in this relationship. Paul could talk to Timothy like that, because Timothy was the pastor. Timothy was the one whose whose heart broke when he saw Hyamaeus and Alexander do what they did. Paul says, Look. There's your example. Don't be like them. Any humble servant of the Lord who has served the Lord for any time at all will understand the question, how do I avoid running aground? How do I avoid crashing? Paul gives us a checklist and the first thing is found in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. In your own hearts, don't answer this out, out loud or by show of hands, in your own hearts, answer me honestly, is prayer the first thing you do when you encounter trials? Most of the time the answer is no. Most of the time we would rather worry about it. We'd rather stress about it or we'd rather hold grudges against that person for a while until we're confronted with the issue. Usually it is the last straw that we come to prayer. We've tried everything else. I guess I'm going to pray now. I've tried tried it all in my own power and nothing's worked, so I guess I've got this one last trump card. I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to be in the power of prayer. Uh, That's not what Paul says. He says, first of all, before anything else, pray. 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 When we do pray, the question is, does it become a whining session that declares, woe is me? How many times is our checklist, Lord, I'm not feeling too good today. Help me uh, with this event today. Help me with this event today. Help me get through this meeting today. Help me, help me to do this or whatever. Lord, pray. we, we pray over our, our issues, our needs. That's all fine and good, but notice what Paul says. He says this. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. In other words, when you come in prayer, you're the last one you pray for. You pray for everybody. And Paul lists several of those for kings who are in all authority, so that and and those in all authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life. So Paul says, first of all, pray. And by the way, pray for the president you may not like. Pray for the governor you may or may not like. Pray for the church authorities that at that moment you may or may not like. Pray for all people. Paul says that we first must pray. And not only that we are to bring all the needs, supplications, petitions, and thanksgiving, but we are to do it for all men. Is that how we pray? Again, honestly in your heart. Is that how you pray? We often treat prayer like a get out of jail free card. You know what? Done everything else in my own power. I know the card that's going to get me out of this. So I'll pray. And, and then, and then when God doesn't answer it the way I want, what do we do? I'm like, well, can't believe God did that to me. See, that's not what Paul says. You know why Paul wants you to pray for all people? Because as soon as your mind gets off you, you have been transformed by the power of prayer. Because as soon as your needs become dimmed in the light of the needs of all humanity, you've been transformed by the power of prayer. God doesn't change in our prayers. We change in our prayers. That's why Paul says, start with that. Start with prayer. So what about the ones we pray for? We've already addressed this a little bit, so we're going to hit this real fast. Paul lists... Uh, lists those that we pray for is not only all men, but all authority. Consider the context of Paul's statement. Paul is writing in 65 A.D. In 70 A.D., Nero is going to destroy Jerusalem. Paul has just been released from his first imprisonment because Nero is losing control of his government. Uprisings are happening and he's blaming the Christians. And so he says, you know what? As a token of goodwill, Nero says, I'm going to release Paul. And so for a few years, Paul has been released from his first imprisonment. For a very short amount of time, maybe less than a few years. And Paul writes the letter of 1 Timothy to Timothy. And then within a few days of it being sent off, Paul is rearrested. And he's persecuted for his faith. And do you know what Paul says? First of all, pray for the king who just arrested me. Pray for the king who has kept me in arrest. Pray for the king who's observing all of the persecution that's happening to the Christians. You and I do not even begin to fathom what the suffering was in 65 AD. And yet Paul says, by the way, when you pray, pray for the guy who's in charge of the persecutions. It's pretty intense. This is not something we should take lightly. Paul is not going to last five years after he writes this letter. He will soon be killed at the hands of the kings, king he prayed for. Paul understood the immense persecution he faced. Nonetheless, he understood the power of prayer. And so let's look at the power of prayer. Verses two and three. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God uh, sight of God our Savior. Paul's statement is amazing. When you consider where he's at, what he's endured, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned, he's been jailed, he's been abused for the sake of Christ. He says, you know what? Pray for the authorities so that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives. Did Paul lead a tranquil and quiet life? When he came to the Corinthian church, in fact, he writes this. He goes, when I first came to you, you did not want to hear me. And he goes through the list of all the things, and you can just imagine this grotesque, short little guy who's preaching the Word of God, and God is using mightily, who's been stoned, who's been shipwrecked, who's been starved for the sake of the gospel message. And Paul says, I was not what you expected when I came. That's the man that brought the gospel message to the Gentiles. That's the man who says, pray so that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives. Paul understood the power of prayer. Paul understood the power of what he was saying, but his tranquility and his quietness was different than yours and mine. We see tranquility as getting away in some island resort. Paul saw it as being in the thick of things, sharing the gospel. We see quiet lives as going off by ourselves and no one around to distract us. Paul saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Paul understood the power of prayer. Because of this, Paul summarizes his first step in verse 8, chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You know what, man, you just got called out. You just got called out. God, Paul calls you out that we should be in prayer to our great God. Your wives don't tend to struggle with it as you and I. We struggle with it. We're the type of guy that says, you know what, I don't need to call help. I know I don't know anything about that car, but if I take this plug out and put this plug in, things are going to work. Or I don't know anything about plumbing, but as soon as I figure it out, I'm going to get that job done. We don't need to call a plumber. We don't need to ask for directions. See, Noticing a trend here? Paul says, by the way, men pray. When the men in our church, begin to pray, transformation of this church will take place. Pray. Men in every place, pray. Avoid wrath and dissension and pray. Paul has more to work on in this quest as he moves into other areas of practical theology and church government. But we skipped a little bit. We're going to consider those things in the future, but we skipped a few verses. And so we need to return to those in order to understand... First, a compassion for people. We have a passion for prayer. We understand its value. I'm going to implement how that's going to look in our church in the annual meeting. And I've already laid out part of that for you during ministry update. But this is all new. This compassion for people. And Paul opens the door here in verses 4 through 7. Notice what he says of this same chapter. Verse 3 gives us the context. This is good and acceptable in sight of God. In other words, to pray is good and acceptable. Verse 4 says, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to know the knowledge, or come to the knowledge of the truth? The compassion of our Savior is first seen here. If you and I are called to be Christ-like, and we are not given the ability to go perform the miracles, that's not what it means to be Christ-like. It doesn't mean that we go out and, and heal people uh, from their blindness, that we raise people from the dead. You're, you and I are not given that ability. That is not ours. But we are called to be Christ-like. And in order to be Christ-like, that means we must develop a heart that is similar to Christ for people. After prayer, which when you read the gospel, is is a consistent action of Christ. Prayer, pray, pray, pray. Christ goes and He prays. Christ goes by Himself and He prays. Christ takes the disciples and He takes three and He prays. How many times did Christ go alone and pray all night? All night. In fact, there are many times, I took our teenagers on youth group, or during youth group this week, through that, and I showed them how many times Christ went out and prayed all night long, through the Gospels. How many times have you prayed all night long? Christ had a three and a half year ministry, and yet He was constantly in prayer all night long. How many times have you prayed all night long? How many times have you just prayed for an extended period of time? More than, Lord bless this food to my body, amen. So we understand prayer. We understand we've got to change in that respect. But after prayer, we ought to develop a heart for his people. What was his desire? Notice his desire mentioned here in verse 4. It says, who desires? That is God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of Of the truth. That's pretty simple. That's clear cut. That is dry. Above everything else. God desires. That every person. Would come to know him as savior. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. The desire of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was that all will be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. This is one of the chief purposes of Christ's entrance into the world. That salvation would be offered. He still gives man the opportunity to reject it. And many men do. But while the other reasons we are unable to participate in, such as the fulfillment of the new covenant, the uh, coming establishment of the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, the millennial kingdom that is to come, those things we don't participate in directly. We can't bring them about. But you and I have been offered an incredible privilege. You and I have been offered the ability... To accomplish, to be used in the accomplishment of one of God's greatest desires. And He made you His voice. And He made you His testimony. Will you share the Gospel? That is a great desire of our great Lord, to share the Gospel, that the world would be saved. We know the world, the entire world's not gonna be, but that doesn't stop us. That doesn't stop us from sharing the Gospel with a Sunni Muslim. That doesn't stop us from sharing the gospel with a good old boy farmer who's your next door neighbor. We should share the gospel because that is a great desire of our great God. God has completed the necessary work. In other words, you don't have to go out and hit him over the head and and bash him in saying, you must come to know Christ as Savior. You don't have to go sacrifice yourself. Christ has done all of the work. All you got to do is be his voice. All you have to do is be his testimony. Christ has completed it all. We just have the task of taking the gospel that the world may know him as their savior. Notice the work. If this is truly the compassion of our savior, what is the work of our savior? Turn to chapter 1 verse 15 for just a moment. Paul says this, this is a, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus or that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul lays out in this first chapter a bit of personal testimony. Christ came to save sinners. Paul then adds, among whom he was foremost. By no means was this all that Christ came to do. There was much more work that Christ came to do. But one of the primary examples, Paul is saying it is a faithful statement that Christ came as one of his objectives to save sinners. Paul points out the compassion of our Lord. The testimony of Paul is one of incredible mercy. In fact, as we read the testimony, you can read from verse 12 all the way through uh, all of that. Paul's testimony is one of incredible mercy, given to one who deserved it the least. While Paul's situation is unique, isn't that the testimony of every believer? Christ came to save sinners among whom I ranked pretty high. We were all guilty. We were all sinners. We were all deserving death. We were all enemies of the cross. And yet the compassion and the mercy of our great God brought salvation to you and I. What about the need? This is the work of the Savior. Now, what about the need of humanity? Notice verses 5 through 7 chapter 2. Scripture says this, For there is one God and one Mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. You know what man's greatest need is? There's one God. And there's one Mediator. Man's greatest need is to know who the Mediator is. They need to know the Mediator. It's not some priest... Who sits in his little cubicle? They can't quite see your face where you confess your sins to him. It is not some person that you go to and sacrifice an animal to. Man needs to know the mediator. Man's greatest need, more than food, more than water, more than the air that they breathe, is who the, is this mediator? And Paul says, this is the man, Jesus Christ. I wonder, how many people in our community that you have bumped into on a regular basis do not know the mediator, do not know the way. There's one God, and wonder of wonders, there is a mediator between God and man. The person, Jesus Christ. Man can believe that his will, his way will satisfy, that God is not going to condemn them. And they will miss the truth of verse 5. There is but one God, one mediator, and you must go through him. Paul is very clear. The mediator is Jesus Christ. And he continues then in verse 6. And he says this. Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You can feel Paul's intensity. You can feel it increase. There's one God. There's one mediator. We can know the mediator in Christ Jesus. The position of Christ as mediator is guaranteed as he served not only as is serving not only as a mediator but is, has served as the ransom price to purchase the captive you see what your job is and what paul is telling timothy is timothy tell the captive that there's a mediator who paid his way that's the gospel that's the gospel in three short sentences there's god there's a captive and there's a mediator position of Christ as mediator is absolutely flawless. He doesn't have to go to someone and say, uh, did you pay their account off? He goes, no. I'm the ransom price. I gave it all. It's me. As Paul continues, we discover in verse 7 that the message was given to Paul, who in surprise to all at the time brought the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, it was such a big surprise that the church had this great big council in jerusalem where james the half brother of jesus presided over it and said you know what i think the gospel has come to the gentiles peter says i don't know and god says peter the gospel came to the gentiles and peter is there when the holy spirit is given to the gentiles no work no endeavor, no initiative that we try to start will ever be successful without prayer. You may see more people. You may see more finances. Does that mean it's successful? Where do we measure success by? Do we measure success by the biggest stage, the best light bar, maybe the the best technology? Do we measure success by... Those who fill the pews but have no personal change? No church will ever be successful according to God's standards without a passion to pray. Equally so, no church will ever be found successful without the compassion of Christ for people. Christ did not come to move people from one fellowship to another. He didn't come to be a light-hearted, uh, what would Jesus do, attitude. Christ didn't come just to say, you know what, humanity, I know life's rough. This truly is hell on earth. No. Christ came to redeem the sinner. Christ came to save the sinner from eternal damnation. If that is why Christ came, if that is the compassion of the holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God, ought not that be the compassion of His people, of those who have come to know Him as Savior? He came in part to save sinners. If this is so important that our God would come come from heaven, to take on flesh and die as an innocent lamb for a people who hated, despised, and rejected Him, then what do you think that His redeemed should do? He left heaven. He brought on flesh of a bondservant to die in your place so that you can sit in church on Sunday morning. Is that all? No. Your job's not done. In fact, your job didn't even start when you came in on Sunday morning says, therefore, be witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. You and I live in the remotest parts of the earth. And it's our job to take the gospel back to Jerusalem. How are we doing with that? Not real well. We can't even reach a Sunni Muslim who lives across town from us, who's been here for two and a half years. In the meeting after the fellowship meal, I'm going to further lay out these two initiatives that take a good hard look in the mirror. I told you it's not going to be comfortable. I told you it's going to be uncomfortable. These are not intending in any way to be offensive. But the reality is, your comfort is not that important. It's not. The fact that it makes you uncomfortable to share the gospel with somebody, praise God. Praise God. The fact that it Is awkward and uncomfortable to bow the knee and praise to our great God. Praise God. You see, your comfort doesn't matter too much. What matters is, are you obedient to the Word of God? The initiatives I will lay out will provide a way that as a fellowship, we can witness the power of passionate prayer. And we can practice a compassion for people. However, This vision is only as good as those who make the commitment to participate. The reality is, and I shared the statistics a couple weeks ago, 3% of people will come to church because I saw them, because I initiated the conversation, because I shared the gospel with them, because I did the work to bring them here. 3%. 56% will come to the fellowship because you invited them. More startling than that. 7% of people will come to know Christ as Savior if I go share the gospel with them. But there's a unique dichotomy that takes place. When I go share the gospel with somebody, they know that I'm the pastor of Goodland Bible Church. I don't know why, but people run from pastors. They don't like pastors. 7% will come to know the Lord because I shared the gospel with them. 86% will come to know the Lord because you shared the gospel with them. Because as a friend or a family member or a neighbor, you shared the gospel with them. That's pretty startling. If we're waiting for me to do the work, we will see what we have seen. A slow attrition. If you go do the work and I provide the materials and the emphasis that is necessary, 86% of you will find success in the very first conversation you have. I praise the Lord for that. Some of you are going to encounter difficulties. All of you will if you continue to do it. The question is, are you willing to be uncomfortable for just a little bit to share the gospel? Those are what we are laying out. The question really is, what can you do for the sake of the gospel and the continuation of this local fellowship? pretty big question some of you have the gifts that are necessary to do well beyond anything that i could do and we need your help we need you to take those steps and to be found faithful and obedient to the word of god let's close in prayer father as we bow our heads today taking a hard look in the mirror lord there are so many things i don't like about myself as as a pastor as a leader There are things I look at in our church that I struggle with as well. I pray that today would be a renewed commitment on behalf of each and every single one of us that we want to be found faithful in having a passion for prayer and a compassion for people. I praise you that we are rooted in the Word of God. I pray that this would continue. But in light of our being rooted in the Word of God, we want to be obedient. We desire to be found faithful. Help us to have a passion for prayer and a compassion for people. Help us to view people the way You viewed them as those who need a Savior, sinners who need redeemed. I pray that every single person we view on the street, we would either see them as knowing that if they receive the Gospel, they will be condemned to hell, but knowing that we may spend eternity with them if they know You as Savior. I pray that we would view every single person we meet on the streets in light of eternity and that we would be Faithful and obedient to your word. Not as one who is obnoxious or obtrusive, but one who gets to the heart of the matter and settles it once and for all for eternity. Lord, I give you the glory and the honor for your word. I pray that we would be willing to be changed by it, that your name would be glorified through it. I thank you for Paul's testimony as his instruction to Timothy. I pray that we'd apply it to our hearts and to our lives. We love you. Thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.